internship, he gave me this sheet of like three pages of list of expectations of things he wanted me to learn <laughs> over, the, over the summer. Amen. And we are going through and, you know, there's a lot of just basic things coming early and doing stuff like that. And then the last one was, give the sermon the last week you're here. And I read that and I was like, oh, uh, okay. So I was like, well, we'll see if that happens. And uh, I tried to keep that in the back of my head for a while. I was like, okay, if I, if I do, what am I going to talk about? Meanwhile, at the beginning of the summer, me and my friend Peter from school had decided to go through Job together over the summer. And so, you know, we'd read a couple chapters, call each other every week, and talk about it and try to figure out this book. And so, along with other stuff I was reading, it kind of, com- I don't know, it all came focused on the book of Job this summer. So I figured, hey, why not Job? Plus, Job is a really interesting figure because the book of Job asks a lot of really serious really hard questions, and those are the questions that I like to ask. Um, so, in the book of Job, yeah, um, the book of Job, okay, so, so, the first verse opens up describing what kind of man Job is, and it says, there's a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. So immediately we get this idea of who Job is. And these two phrases, phrases blameless and upright, fear God and turn away from evil, um, they really mean a lot and they have a lot of Old Testament history. Blameless in, in the Old Testament is seen, it's a command and it's also uh, a description of a holy man. This is, you know, throughout scripture it is used as uh, the description of a holy man. And same for fear of God, it is seen a lot in Proverbs and this is, Basically, the description of a wise person, if you look at 9.10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so, this is the absolute beginning. So, we see these two phrases um, describing Job. And uh, immediately we are shown this person who is, while may not be absolutely perfect because he is human... He's pretty much the Michael Phelps of religious people. He's like, he's just the best. But then we are brought to a scene in the heavens. And the Satan, most most Bibles translate as Satan, but uh, a more accurate translation is adversary. And so this adversary comes up to Yahweh. And Yahweh explains and boasts, have you, have you noticed my servant Job? There is no one like him on earth. A blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil. So not as only the narrator of this book describing Job this way, Yahweh himself is bragging about him in the same way, calling him a holy and wise man. But the adversary is not convinced, and he's skeptical, and he says... Job fear God for no reason. Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. So, Yahweh hears this and he says, okay, you have, you have control now. He says, just don't kill him. So the adversary goes down, he destroys Job's livestock, he destroys Job's servant, his property, he even kills his ten children. 
And then he gives him sores from the bottom of his feet, his feet to the top of his head, making him probably the most miserable man ever to live. And you see Job suffering. He has two of these main kinds of suffering, emotional suffering. He's lost his wealth, his property, everything he owns, his family. And then he has this physical suffering where he can't even just feel healthy. And so immediately the book of Job asks this question. There's this innocent man. Well, why is God allowing this to happen? Because this, from our perspective, this doesn't seem right at all. (coughs) We want reasons. We want answers when we suffer. And in the apologetic world, this is known as a theodicy. And a theodicy is defined as the defense of the justice of God in spite of evils in creation. So a theodicy theodicy is this answer, it is this explanation of why suffering or evil is involved. Uh, One of my professors at school, at this point, asked this question, what theodicy will fill the vacuum? So after the prologue is finished and all this is set up, what is the answer to this? And so in most books, or most stories, this would be the question that the book's trying to answer. This question is put in a really profound way by Fyodor Dostoevsky um, in his book, The Brothers Karamazov. His character, Father Zosima, asks this question, how could God give up the most love of his saints for the diversion of the devil, take from him his children, smite him with sore boils so that he cleanse the corruption from the sores with a potsherd, and for no object except to boast to the devil? See what my saint can suffer for my sake. And this is exactly how it seems to Job. In chapter 30, he exclaims, I cry out to you, but you do not answer me. I wait, but you do not consider me. You have become cruel to me. With your powerful hand, you harass me. Earlier in the book, he he says, When I say, my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions. Leave me alone, for my days are but a breath. He's talking to God. But honestly, when when we read this book, doesn't it seem exactly, it's exactly how it seems to us, and, and to Job. And he's not just complaining that God's being mean. He's not saying, okay, guys, just, just chill out for a little bit. He, he, he's saying he's harassing him, and he's begging him to just leave him alone and die. This is a picture of malicious, relentless torment by God himself. So now Job is suffering in another sense, a spiritual sense, and he's at this point of cognitive dissonance because of God's actions. Now, cognitive dissonance is its basically a moment where you, you believe one thing, but you, you want another. So Job has believed in this idea of a God that makes sense to him for so long, his entire life, 
And now he's at a point where God seems to be contradicting who he believed he was. And so he's just a wreck completely. Emotionally, physically, and spiritually. There's nothing really more you can do to this person. So like I said, the main way to answer these questions is by theodicies. And Job's friends come in and they try to answer these questions for Job. They try to explain what is happening for him. And the main, there are three main theodicies in the book of Job, but for lack of time we can only focus on one. And the most prevalent is called the reward retribution principle. The righteous experience blessing and well-being in his life, while the wicked experience cursing and hardship. I mean, I feel like most of us, when we see this, we go, of course that's not true. But the thing is, Job's friends find this in Scripture. This isn't just some random thing they picked up. These are, these are just four verses from Proverbs, ex- you know, explaining where these men got this, the- this theology. But the problem is, they're taking these little clips, as they will call little sound bites of theology, and making them universal truths, which... Again, as my professor Richard Smith would say, when one theological principle of traditional wisdom is piously elevated to function at the level of theodicy, in other words, using these legitimate, legitimate theological views in illegitimate ways, like these are completely legitimate theological views. It's from scripture, but they're using it in completely the wrong ways. And so this leads to misrepresentations of the ways and attitudes of God as well as righteous people. So Job's friends are not just misrepresenting Job and saying, you've done something wrong when he really hasn't. They're also misrepresenting God, saying God is someone that he's not. And Eliphaz is the first friend of Job to speak up. And he loves this answer. He loves it because it's so easy for him to figure out exactly why this is happening. He sees something happen to Job. All he has to do is the theological math to say, okay, I know good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. Bad things are happening to Job. Oh, he's done something wrong. It's so easy for him. And he loves that. And when you see this, this is just another part of the equation for Eliphaz and Job's friends. This is God directly affecting the life of Job. But using this theodicy, this, this answer, this explanation of this problem, this makes God into a math formula, a logical equation. Job is explaining, continually explaining that this is not how the world works. You know, look around you. Evil is everywhere. Evil is thriving while good people die every day. And Job is the perfect example of that. Job's saying his friends, they want to live by these, or they want to say that God lives by these rules. But in saying that, they're saying they know how he's going to react their lives show God to be predictable. Job's completely aware of this, what this 
theodicy, this theology, um, completely aware of what this means because he's living this way his whole life. And then all of a sudden this happens to him and now he's like, I have no idea who God is right now. So this leads us to ask a question. Why do you serve God? I was asked this question um, last fall in my Poetic and Wisdom Literature class. And my professor asked, asked this class, why do you serve God? Is it because you approve of his moral character? Or is it because he is God and you are not? I was listening to this and I just sat in my chair like a scared little kid. I was like, oh no, I've never, asked him this. I've never been asked this before. And so I just remember sitting there like, uh, uh. Because so many of us seem to just, we serve God because he's kind of us. Or we make him to be. We like what his values, his commands are, because that's how we live. So why do you serve God, especially one that does this for no object, letting Job suffer, except to boast to the devil, see what my saint can do or can suffer for my sake. Job's reaction to his friends his friends is uh, the Odyssey is in 23 he exclaims he is unchangeable and who can turn him back what he desires that he does two verses later he says therefore I am terrified at his presence when I consider I am in dread of him Job's explaining God does what he wants. God, God doesn't fit into our little box of values or our little box of rules we have for him. He, he's not contained by our little theodicies saying he blesses good people and he curses bad people. God does not fit into just little boxes like that. He does what he wants. And honestly, the more I think of this, the more I think I understand what the fear of God is, being terrified at the idea that he can't be understood. That we can't always explain what he's doing or what's going on. C.S. Lewis in his Narnia books describes Aslan as an untamed lion. This is, I think that's a perfect wording of God. He's not tame. You can't control him. He's not on a leash for us to walk around. He, he does what he wants. In the opening video, um, even though the, uh, the wording was wrong, um, <laughs> when you're watching the video, can't you just identify with this boy walking around Iceland just feeling so small? I mean, just how big and beautiful and glorious this world is. Justin Vernon thinks, and all at once I knew I was not magnificent. This is exactly how Job is about to feel in a second. We read 38 and a little bit of 40 where Yahweh is just asking these questions to Job. I'm just going to read a couple more of them now. He asks, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge, dressed for action like a man, 
I will question you. You make it known to me. This, this is Yahweh. <laughs> Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirt of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light and where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory, that you may discern the path to its home? You know, for you were born then and the number of your days is great. As David would say... Wow! <laughs> 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 okay, closing song. <laughs> so after about three chapters of these questions, Yahweh finally asks Job to reply, and all Job can say is, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once. I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. Job is identifying with this little boy walking around Iceland right now, feeling so small. So small. So at the beginning, when we ask this question, what theodicy will fill the vacuum? This is the answer the book gives us. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Joseph's, or Yahweh's response to Job is, look how big I am. Now this isn't very satisfying because we want answers especially when we suffer especially when we live hell on earth we want answers and reasons for why that happens God how can God be interested in that he provides no answer so again why do you serve God if he is as confusing, as frustrating as he is in this book, do you serve God because he's like you, or do you serve him because he is God and you are not? <laughs> so the story, what is in the story we are left with? Job cries out, God answered him, humbling Job more than any man has ever been humbled. And we're not given any, get any answer. So leads me to wonder what Job's friends would do if they were in Job's position. Because 
They understand, because it's so easy to put God in this box, they understand God. From their perspective, of, of course it's happening to you. You've done something wrong. This is the God they're fighting for. This is the God they really, really, really want. This is the God that they want. So, what kind of God do you want? As Cities Burn in their song, Made Too Pretty, says, We don't want a God we don't see in ourselves. Isn't that just the truth? I mean, if we're all completely honest, if I think about the God I want, I, I really want Jesus, I want him to come to earth, love the, love the judged, the hated, the dejected of society, but when he looks at the religious folk, I don't want him to love them. The arrogant, the self-righteous, the prideful, that's, I don't want God to love them. But the thing is, then I'm just becoming another one of Job's friends making God my little God. Making my God myself, but a little more perfect so I'm not arrogant enough to worship myself. So what kind of God do you want? What kind of God do you fight for? David said a few weeks ago, we have to stop making God like us. If we only serve God because his morals align with ours, when we read the story of Job, he really becomes a God we don't want. He becomes a mystery. He's really, really confusing. He's frustrating. And so when we push that God away and say, okay, say, okay I'm going to worship the God of a couple verses over here and I'm just going to completely ignore who he is over here, we begin worshiping an idol, a fake deity that we have created who is just us. And we begin serving this God of our own imagination, one we control, one we tame. We put him in a cage a box, a bubble, whatever metaphor you want to use, we put him in that thing. William Neal explains, in the end, Job went through from his despair to a true knowledge of God when he recognized that the God he has been arraigning is a God of his own making. He finds peace of mind and spirit in a humble acceptance of his proper place in the scheme of things as a creature living by faith under a sovereign creator whose ways are beyond man's understanding. And so, even though the book of Job or Yahweh does not give us an answer or a a reason for why all this happens, he gives us a solution in how he responds to Job. Look at me. Look how big I am. You are really small. He wants us to see God, who He really is, as totally apart from our understanding. As too big for us. As too old for us. As too wide for us. Wise for us. (laughs) Humility is the solution 
in this book. And this God he's been arraigning is one he's been making. And so many people have left religion, the faith, whatever you want to call it, because we find problems with God because something bad happens to us and we say, I can't worship a God who lets that happen because that's too mean. We can only have problems with God if we are defining Him, if we are controlling Him. But in the end, as William Neal explains, he finds peace of mind and spirit in a humble acceptance of His proper place. thing about God is when we question Him believe me, I'm all about questions but when we question Him we have to come to a place of pure humility understanding that He does what He wants because He is God and we aren't William Neal explains the paradoxes of the ways of God are part of the mystery of our being. It is only in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ that the affliction of Job reached their proper evaluation. We have reached the heart of the message of Job when we can say, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I claim. And just like Job, this is this is how we need to finish off every confrontation with God every question with God I don't know because you are God I'm not I'm just going to hold on to your cross because that's all I know all I know is that you love me and even though that isn't satisfying why would we be so arrogant as to expect that these tiny creatures on this tiny earth on this huge, just freaking ginormous universe that God has created. Why would we be able to understand Him? Like Job, needs to be simply to thy cross, I claim.